0: All right, so we're looking at the charismatic Pentecostal word-faith movement. Um, there's different branches here. So what I want to start is, is what we're going to basically do is I'm going to give you some definitions. There's some overlap uh, between the various movements. Um, and we're not going to dive so much into the history as we're going to look at just certain doctrines um, that here at Believer's Fellowship we would not agree with. So we're basically going to look at, okay, here's... Here's the main beliefs that distinguish those movements from our beliefs. And here's why we believe what we believe. That's basically what we're going to go through today. Um, So I do want to mention, if you want more on the history, there's a number of good books you can read. Uh, John MacArthur has a couple. One is called Charismatic Chaos. One is called Strange Fire. Those are both good books dealing with the uh, charismatic movement, and they have a little bit more history. I think especially the charismatic chaos has more of the history in there. And then Costi um, Hinn, Benny Hinn's nephew, has a number of good books. One of them is called Defining Deception. I can't remember the first one, but he's written two or three books. He's come out of that movement. Uh, so he's a really good uh, person to uh, read. So I would recommend his books as well if you're looking for additional resources. Um, but just to start, uh, let's define what we're going to be talking about today. So what is the difference between the Word-Faith movement, Pentecostalism, and Charismatic movement? Because we're kind of talking about all three in a way, but they're not all the same. So I don't want to put them all together and say that every church that we're t- in those movements believes all of these things but we're going to talk about kind of what distinguishes them and then what are some of the beliefs that are prominent that we wouldn't agree with. So let's start with the Word Faith Movement. The Word Faith Movement, also known as the Name It and Claim It Movement, the Health and Wealth Movement, or the Prosperity Gospel Movement. That's who we'd be talking about there. The Word Faith Movement, one of their primary uh, teachings, which is the name, why the name is what it is for that movement, is they teach that God wants to bless us materially in materially in this life they teach that our words have power and if we state and claim god's promises in faith then they will become reality and these claims are in the areas of health and wealth so basically god wants every believer to be healthy and wealthy and if you're not it's because you haven't claimed those promises in faith that, that would be the, the summary of what the word faith movement uh, emphasizes. <clears throat> and so so, w- so we would argue that that really becomes, essentially, most of the time, the gospel in those churches. That the emphasis is on being healthy and wealthy. The emphasis isn't on the gospel, the true gospel, right? Which is to be saved um, but, uh, spiritually. It's not about health and wealth in this life. Um, so the word faith movement considers itself Christian. I would not dispute that there are genuine Christians in some of those churches. I do wonder about the teachers, especially the leaders, especially the successful ones who you see on TV who make all kinds of claims that we would not believe are true. So I would argue that some of these people that you would see on TV are charlatans, and they know it. Many of them are, and it's about money, and it's about fame, and it's about power. So uh, that's the word faith movement. (coughs) Pentecostalism uh, is the second definition. Pentecostalism is defined as an evangelical charismatic reform movement that believes that the experience of 120 on the day of Pentecost, known as the baptism in the Holy Spirit, should be normative for all Christians. So Pentecostalism is actually a denomination, a Christian denomination. It began in Topeka, Kansas in 1901 under Charles Fox Parham with an outbreak of tongues speaking. Or at least supposedly Azusa, there was an Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles in 1906 led by William J. Seymour. And some of the Pentecostal organizations would be Assemblies of God, Church of God in Christ. Okay, so Pentecostalism is focused on that that idea that the experience of Acts 2, Pentecost, is a normal thing for the church today and throughout history. So that's their main thing that keeps going that people when they, they have this baptism of the spirit and they speak in tongues and that's what they expect. So that's not the same thing as the word faith. Okay? But it is it is believing um, that that continues. That's their main thing. And certainly, you know, there are people that believe that churches that believe that and there'd be many believers in that church potentially that they believe that, that we wouldn't agree with. But that doesn't mean they don't have the right gospel. That doesn't mean they're not worshiping the right God. And they don't have the right view of the scriptures. So we're not saying that they're not Christians. Um, many of them are. Okay, and then we come to the third definition, charismatic churches. There's a, there's a whole variety here. This is very broad. So, um, but the, basically the idea of the charismatic is they believe in the continuation of the miraculous gifts. And usually the baptism in the spirit as well. So it's kind of related to Pentecostalism in that sense. Uh, This began in the 1950s. It was actually called Neo-Pentecostal for a little bit. And then in the 60s in Van Nuys, California, under uh, Episcopalian Dennis Bennett. Um, But the distinction is the charismatic isn't really a denomination. So you could have charismatic churches that are in certain denominations. So they believe in those those gifts continuing, but they might be as that was. uh, Dennis Bennett was an Episcopalian. So it's someone within the Episcopalian church who's charismatic, a charismatic church. or It could be a charismatic Roman Catholic church. It could be a charismatic Lutheran church. And so that usually is within a denomination. Or it could be non-denominational uh, like Calvary Chapel. Okay, Calvary Chapel would be non-denominational uh, charismatic. And actually, um, some Calvary chapels do a good job of teaching the Bible. Like We wouldn't disagree with them. Um, and a lot of what they teach. So again, I'm not claiming that all, all people in these churches are not saved. There could be many people who are saved. Uh, but charismatic churches believe in tongues. Usually uh, they often uh, also view it as evidence of baptism in the spirit. They believe that uh, that all believers should be able to do like Jesus and the apostles. So again, it's a continuation of his miraculous gifts. The view would be that those gifts started there, or maybe even through all history, and they're continuing uh, to this day. So we ought to be able to prophesy, heal, cast out demons, all of those things, receive new revelation, that all of those things um, should be continuing. And there tends to be an emphasis on emotions and feelings Uh, in the charismatic movement, you might see. Um, not just tongues, but some of the more outrageous stuff like uh, Bethel Church in Reading, where they're thrashing around on the floor and barking like dogs, supposedly being slain in the spirit. So not just tongues, but just outrageous things going on. Or you could, if you've ever watched Benny Hinn with his white coat, swatting people and they fall over and they're slain in the spirit, that kind of stuff. So some of the wild stuff uh, does happen in charismatic churches, but there's all variety of uh of uh how they would approach that all right so that's kind of what we're looking at those three groups um and what you'll notice is the commonality in the three groups is the continuation of the gifts right because the tongues we're expecting uh tongues in in pentecostalism the tongues and the baptism of the spirit charismatic is that plus more and then in the word faith movement well it has to do with uh power of your words that you can make things become reality, and usually uh, they're they're charismatic as well as word faith. So that's really one of the commonalities between them. So I define two more terms after that, continuationist and cessationist. So continuationist is what those three movements would be. Continuationist means, you can see here the word continue in it, it means that these groups believe that the miraculous gifts continue to this day. Okay, so it's continuationist movements or churches. Uh, and then we would be what would, is called a cessationist. In fact, there's a, a new documentary that just came out, I think, where it's coming out called Cessationism, or is it just cessationist? I'm not sure. Cessationist. And so that means that we believe that those gifts have ceased, right? The cessation means something has stopped. So we believe that they've ceased after the apostolic age, that they're no longer operating today. Uh, what are these gifts we're talking about? We're talking about prophecy. We're talking about healing. We're talking about casting out demons. We're talking about speaking in tongues. And then anything else you might call miraculous. Um, in the case of like uh, word faith, it would be just the path that you can speak something into existence um, or any other miracle that we've seen uh, in scripture. Um, water turning to wine or the Nile turning to blood or anything like that. <clears throat> Uh, so a word-faith church would typically be charismatic. A charismatic church is a kind of like a type of Pentecostal, but not in the Pentecostal denomination. And uh, we mentioned a Pentecostal church could be orthodox in most doctrines, but it holds to spirit baptism, and all three of these movements would be what we call continuationist. So the people you see on TV, those are usually charismatic word-faith teachers. So they're usually the name-it-and-claim-it and so that's the first big difference between what we believe and any of these churches is that they believe in a continuation of those gifts. So what I'm going to do today is I want to focus on some of those main doctrines and why we don't believe them, okay? why we would disagree. And again, I'm not saying all of those churches believe all of those things, but we're going to highlight any, the main ones that come out in each of the groups. So the one I want to start with, I titled this Common Doctrines With Which We Disagree. I want to start with the word faith idea god wants you to be healthy and wealthy okay and i want to show from scripture that this is not true okay and that's why we wouldn't agree with that god wants you to be healthy and wealthy okay that's the hallmark of the prosperity gospel the name it and claim it um god wants us to prosper he wants us to be healthy and wealthy in this life and if we're not it's because we lack enough faith We're not claiming the promises because he's promised that to us. He wants to bless us, but we have to believe it and we have to claim it. If we haven't got it, it's basically our fault. All we need to do is believe in faith and claim his promises. Uh, You could go back and, and really tie the beginning of this back to Oral Roberts. There's a university named after Oral Roberts. He was a prosperity gospel preacher. And he supposedly was inspired by 3 John 2. So let's go there together. 3 John 2 is the verse that inspired Oral Roberts' theology. Sadly, this would be an example of theology built on a verse taken out of context. All right, so let's read 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So Oral Roberts' view is, here's a promise from God that we can claim. Okay, but what's wrong with that? What, can somebody tell me what, what's Third John, you know, what's the context? What's going on here? It's a greeting. It's a, greeting. It's a letter written by the Apostle John. Uh, do we know who it's written to? It says, first verse, the elder to the beloved Gaius. So this is, a, this is a letter written from John to Gaius. It's a personal letter. And he's telling Gaius, he's calling him beloved. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So how is this a promise of God for you and I? This is like if I were to write one of you a letter and say, I pray that you're doing well. That everything's going well, you're, you're healthy, and, and, and your walk is, is solid with the Lord. It's just expressing well-wishing in a letter. Right? It's not saying, oh yeah, God's promising that you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy. It's just expressing that I, I hope that you're in good health. And I hope, as your soul is, I hope that you physically are in good health. <clears throat> so this has been completely taken out of context to say, oh yeah, here's a promise from God that we're supposed to be healthy and wealthy. It's just, it's just a greeting in a letter, well-wishing from the Apostle John to his friend. Uh, some other verses um, that they would use to support the claim. Uh, sometimes they're verses about prayer. So they would say, well, it's like prayer because God promises that he'll give us whatever we ask. So let's look at some of those. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. So we'll look at a couple verses to support that are used to support the view that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. <clears throat> Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I've I listened to watch one of those guys on TV preach this passage in that way. Whatever you ask of God, it's yours if you just claim it because of this passage. Matthew 7, 7, and 8. All right, how about another one? Matthew 17, 20. All right, someone else want to read that for me? Save my voice so I'm not reading them all. Matthew
1: 17:20. He said to them, "Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you."
0: Okay. So I can do anything. Right? If I have a, just just if I have enough faith, I can do anything. All right, and then 1 John 3:22. First John 3.22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Whatever we ask, we get from him. There we are, okay? And then they'll say the key, though, is that you have to believe, you have to not doubt, and they'll go to like James one six that says, let him, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person not, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord he is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Okay. One well, note there, by the way, uh, in James, the context is that he is talking specifically about asking for wisdom. Uh, but the main point is actually that we must trust in God's character, God's purpose and his promises. Otherwise, we're double-minded. Otherwise, we're, we're just going through the motions. We're not expecting him to really answer us. We're just going through the motions of a, of a, of a rote prayer. All right, so what I want to do first in, in addressing these claims from these passages, uh, I want to first establish that God does not answer all prayer requests, even if you believe it and claim it. Okay, so let's turn to James 4.3 as one example. James 4 3, you ask and do not receive. Well, there you go, right there. Somebody's asking and not receiving. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, so right there we see that if our motives are wrong, he will not grant our request. So there goes my fancy car, my mansion, my billion dollars in the bank. There goes my life of ease that I would have if only I had what, all this that I want, right? If I have the wrong motives, he's not going to grant it. Uh, how about 1 John 5.14? 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, that's very important, you should underline that. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. By the way, this is the same John in the same book where he wrote the 1 John uh, 3, where they're taking that to be like whatever we ask, we get with no conditions. But we see here, he's saying, no, 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 no. If you, if you ask according to God's will, then he will grant it. Okay? That's the key. We must ask according to his will. Uh, go to John 15, not 1 John, but John 15. Same author, but the gospel of John. John 15, 7. This is Jesus speaking. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Okay, so so what we see there is the condition that if we're abiding in him and his words are in us. In other words, we're filled with his word. We're controlled by his word. We're seeking to glorify him. If that's the case, if our request is according to his word and will, then he will grant it. Okay, you go back uh, to John 14, 13 and 14. And we see similar thinking here. Uh, Similar statement. Uh, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name... I will do it. Okay, well, in the Bible, the name uh, represents not just a name, but it actually represents the character of the person it's talking about. So when we're talking about God's name, that indicates his character and his attributes. And so when we say here, pray in his name, a lot of times people think, oh yeah, that just means you just say in his name. That's the magic formula. If you pray and you say, in in Jesus' name, he's going to give it to you. That's not what it means. When we say pray in Jesus' name, what we're talking about is according to his name, according to who he is, according to his character, according to his will. So it's, it's not just we throw that in there and say Jesus' name. It means it's according to who he is, his name. So it's the same as when before we said, if you abide in me, or we said if you ask anything according to his will, this is all talking about the same thing. If you pray according to his will, according to his character, Uh, John 15, 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So again, in his name, John 16, 22. 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask Nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Okay, in my name, in my name. So we see, if you look through the the whole of Scripture, and you don't just focus on one verse and take it out of context, just because I'm a believer, and I want to claim something like health and wealth, that's not a guarantee that I'm going to receive it. It is not promised in Scripture to me. I can't just claim a car. I can't just claim a healing I'm only promised the things that are in accord with God's character and God's will. Okay, so what of the passages cited earlier in in support of the word faith movement? Uh, If you go back to Matthew 7, Matthew 7 is a promise that God will give us what's good. Right? He says you ask for for this. He's not going to give you this bad thing instead. You ask for that. And then at the end, 8, it says He's in, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay, well, think about that for a moment. Even we as humans, just pretend you're a parent for a second. As a parent, do your children ever ask you for things that they want that are not good for them? And would you give it to them? <laughs> no, right? So there are certain things that, that even in, in our experience in the world, if our child asks us for something, they might think it's good, but we actually know it's not good for them ultimately. And we're not going to give it to them, right? My child likes video games. He wants to play all day long. Well, I'm not going to let him, right? Or he want, likes candy, and he wants candy. Well, he can have a little bit of candy, but he wants a lot of candy. Or he, you know, he wants whatever. Or he just wants freedom to do whatever he wants to do. And he thinks that's good, but I know it's not. And so I'm not going to just give him Whatever he thinks is good, I'm going to give him what's actually good for him as best as I can determine. And, of course, God knows what's actually good for us. That's what he's going to give us, right? And, in fact, we know this because Romans eight twenty eight tells us that God uses all things together for good for believers, right? So we know that that's actually what he tells us. He says he will use whatever's going on in our lives for our good. He's going to give us good. He disciplines us, Hebrews 12 says, for our good, So it's good that we're going to receive from God. That doesn't mean he's going to give you whatever you ask for. Okay, so the people are taking Matthew 7, 7, and 8 and running with us to say, you're just going to get whatever you want. But no, he says, give us what's good. And God does do that. But that's not always what we think it is or what we want it to be. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, if you look, that's Matthew 7. So it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, The main point here is that we don't need to worry about ourselves because God will take care of us. That's really what the the context is. We can place others first. We can endure persecution. We can forego vengeance and we can forgive. And yes, we can even love our enemies without being worried, without worrying about being taken advantage of, without worrying about who's going to take care of me. So, actually, the context of this is. He's saying, do this, do this, don't take vengeance, love your enemies. And then my worldly response would be like, if I do that, people are going to take advantage of me. Who's going to take care of me? I need to look out for me. And if I do that, I'm not, who's going to take care of me? And his answer is, I'm going to. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about you. You can do this and you're free to do that because I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about that. So that's what he's, that's really the context of what's going on here. He will give us good things. He will take care of you so that you can live the way he wants you to live. And he says in Matthew 6, right, not to worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink, right? Seek first the the, uh, kingdom of God and his righteousness and these will be added to you, right? So the point is we don't have to worry about those things. He'll give them to us. He'll give us what we need. He'll give us the good things. That's really what Matthew 7 is talking about. Uh, John MacArthur writes, we can feel free to fully love others and totally sacrifice for others. Because our Heavenly Father sets the example in his generosity to us and promises that we will have access to his eternal and unlimited treasure to meet our own needs as well as theirs. But he doesn't say way more than you need, right? He doesn't say wealth and health. We can do for others what we would want done for ourselves without the fear of depleting the divine resources and having nothing left. That's what Matthew 7 is talking about. All right, what about Matthew seventeen twenty? Moving mountains. Well, this passage does not mean that we can literally move mountains or do whatever we want with our minds. Uh, Commentator William Barclay explains that the verbiage about moving mountains was common in expressions of the day, and it should not be taken literally. He says this, A great teacher who could really expound and interpret scripture and who could explain and resolve difficulties, was regularly known as an uprooter or even a pulverizer of mountains. To tear up, to uproot, to pulverize mountains were all regular phrases meaning to remove difficulties. Jesus never meant this to be taken physically and literally. After all, the ordinary man seldom finds any necessity to remove a mountain. What he meant was, if you have faith enough, all difficulties can be solved and even the hardest task can be accomplished. Faith in God is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty, which block their path. So it's not a free, I can do anything. Look, it says I can literally move mountains if I just believe it enough, so I can do anything. Okay. I mean, really, you should be able to put anyone to the test who believes that. I knew someone who used to believe this, and then I I would say, well, okay, here's a cup, make that move. And, of course, the person couldn't do it. So I'm like, well, so what's wrong? You don't have enough faith? Well, then that means you don't really believe that. So you're telling me you believe you could move that, but the reason you actually can't move it is because you don't believe it. So do you believe that or you don't? Well, obviously you don't because you can't do it. So it's just something as simple as that. If you can move the we well, move the cup. Show me, right? No, you can't do it. So it's it's not something we can do, all right? And it's it's not promised in Scripture that we can. That's not what that's talking about. It doesn't mean you can just use the force and move things uh, with your mind. All right, uh, how about 1 John 3, 22? Uh, Again, that one says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Okay, well, first I would say we have to operate on the whole teaching of Scripture. So one problem is the other verses that we've looked at make it clear that this is not an open statement. It's not a completely uh, open promise. It does, we see that God does not promise to grant absolutely anything we request. That, this verse can't mean that because we've seen numerous other verses that show that that is not the case. So obviously this verse is not being understood correctly if that's how we take it. Or you have a contradiction in scripture and we don't believe in that. So we have a problem that this one verse is disagreeing with the rest of the Bible. So what do you do? Well, you got to go with the, teaching, the t- whole teaching of Scripture. But I think even if you look at this verse carefully, I think you'll actually find that it seems like it fits in with the other teaching as well. Because um, you'll notice that even in this verse, it says, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. It says, you'll receive what you ask because you do keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So I would argue that this isn't talking about us earning answered prayer through obedience but it's describing the heart of the person making the request. This is a person who's living obediently to please the Lord. So even there, I would argue that John is saying that the person here is seeking to glorify and honor God. And if that's the case, his requests are going to be according to God's will or in his name, so that it's really not saying anything different than the other passages that John wrote. So I would argue that, that, you don't, that this is actually even still, in that second part of the statement, talking about the same thing. We do not have a promise that he'll give us anything we want. <clears throat> okay, so if, if you are convinced with that, if you agree, then we've established biblically that we can't just name and claim whatever we want from God, right? He's not a genie. I can't just make a wish, and then he's obligated to give it. The only promise we have is that if we ask according to his character and will, in his name, he will grant it. And then we also know from Romans 8 that he'll use all things together for good for us. Okay, well, let's go a step farther. So God won't give us absolutely anything, but I want to go a step farther, and I want to show you that if we read through our Bibles, we also will see that it is not God's will for every believer to be healthy and wealthy. So not only can you not claim absolutely anything, but health and wealth is not something you can claim specifically. All right, so let's look. Consider, for example, Job. OK, what happens in Job? Job was a righteous man who lost just about everything, his children, his health, his wealth. And one of the major points of the book is that he lost all of that. Why? Was it because of something he did? No, it was the, one of the major points was he was a righteous man and it wasn't because of his sin. Right? He was not being punished for sin. That was the mistake that his friends made, is they thought if he's suffering, it must be because of some sin in his life that he's not acknowledged and he's not repented of. He must have done something. It's called the retribution principle. It's wrong. It's the idea that anytime we're suffering, it must be that God's punishing us for sin. Not necessarily. It could be true. It's not true for believers, by the way. But it's, he's not, it's not that Job was being punished for sin. So let's flip that around. So then Job should have been healthy and wealthy, should he not? Well, after he lost everything, he should be able to claim his health and wealth and be healthy and wealthy if that theology is true. But he's not, right? And if you read through Job 1, you see that Satan comes to God and he asks permission and God lets him take those things from Job. It wasn't because Job was doing anything sinful. And then Satan came a second time And then he took Job's health, specifically his health. So first he lost his wealth and his family. Then he lost his health. So let's run through that again. So Satan came to God and God said, go ahead and do it. So was Job's health and wealth, was it God's will for Job to be healthy and wealthy? It was his will for him not to be. Because he said, go take it from him, Right? He was showing that his faith wasn't dependent on those things yeah but but the point he is in terms of the name it and claim it theology it was god's will for him to be unhealthy for that time it was god's will for him to be not rich for that time to lose everything so he's sitting there for all that period not healthy and not wealthy where a name it and claim it theologian would tell you well, you're not healthy and wealthy. You're sitting there scraping the sores off your body because you don't believe, or you're in sin, or you don't believe enough and you're not claiming your health and your wealth that God wants to give you. And they blame it on the person. And so the whole point is this is counter to that viewpoint. It was God's will for that time that he would not be healthy and wealthy.
1: Henry. Even in Job, uh, with his wife, he says that, uh, uh, that his wife said his his wife said to him, "Do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die?" But he said to her, "You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Nor does Job understand this."
0: Yeah. So, what do you do with that? If you think it's God's will for us to be healthy and wealthy, it wasn't for Job. How do you know it is for you? Well, Job's not the only example. Uh, Let's turn to John 9. Very beginning of John 9. Jesus and his disciples encounter a man who was born blind. The disciples have the wrong assumption, just like Job's friends. They have this idea that if he's blind, he's not healthy, he's suffering... It must be because he did something, or maybe his parents did something. So look at John 9, 1 and 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What does Jesus say? Verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, so so what's the implication here? In other words, it was God's will for this man to be blind his whole life until that point. Right? The whole point was that he would be blind until this very moment when God was going to be glorified as Jesus healed him. But his whole life before that, it was God's will for him to be blind. How does that fit with name it and claim it? Well, he doesn't have enough faith. He's not claiming the health that God wants. No, God did not want him to have that health. He was born blind. He was supposed to be blind. That's God's will until that moment. And God's glorified through it. So the blind man, he has. it's not because he lacks faith. It's not because he's in sin. It's because that was God's will.
1: So, yeah. And can we say that God does all things for his own glory, including allowing people to through trials or even
0: sickness? Absolutely. Yep, exactly. And we're going to go into that more too. Yep. All right, so John 9, but, but like Jerry was just saying, okay, let's keep going. How about the poor in the church? Okay, poor in the church. Acts 2.45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Why didn't they just tell them to have more faith? Give, give, give what you got. You know, how about the, the two mites, the widow and the two mites? Why don't you give what you got? You're going to get tenfold back. No, they sold their stuff and provided for people in need. They didn't tell him, you don't have enough faith. Uh, Acts four thirty four and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. If only the word faith preachers would do that. But they're not. They're not taking care of the needy with what they have. They're saying, oh, you just don't have enough faith. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, one of the word faith teachers, he says this, God's word is life, life to our bodies, life to our spirit, life to our relationships, and life to our finances. Stand and be in prayer for financial breakthrough and believe God for the increase and victory that you need in your finances today. That's their teaching. All right. Consider also what the Bible teaches about trials and suffering. This is what Jerry brought up. Uh, How about uh, this is for believers. Hebrews 12. I mentioned it as well. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom he loves, right? So, so I would contend that he doesn't punish believers for sin, but he disciplines us to grow us, right? That's part of him sanctifying us. This is what uh, Hebrews 12 is talking about. But notice, as you read, he says, uh, Six, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He says, if you don't receive discipline, you're not really a son. So we all receive discipline. And then he says, uh, he disciplined us for a short time. Uh, Our fathers did. God does that. And then 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So God gives us things that are painful rather than pleasant to grow us. It's his will for us to go through things that are painful. So if anyone's telling you that it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy and have a comfortable life with no issues, no trials, no pain, it's not true. He gives us things that are painful because growing is painful, right? but it is part of his grace to grow us. He says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God does not promise a life of comfort, health, wealth, and ease. Um, let's hit a couple more of these passages. Acts 14, 22. Uh 21 when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God so we are going to face many tribulations Romans 8:17 Uh, we're children. Uh, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We suffer with Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we can expect suffering, we can expect pain, we can expect persecution. Um, how about Philippians 1.29? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So this is a kind of crazy, mind-blowing passage in some ways. But he's saying that God has granted to you belief as a gift of grace, but he's also granted you suffering as a gift of grace. So we've received suffering and we've received belief as gifts of God's grace. So you can expect suffering as a Christian. Okay, and how about, I'm um, just look at Paul. Paul was an apostle. He was a leader in the early church. He was a, a godly man who could exhort us to imitate him as he imitated Christ. What did Paul go through in his life? Was he healthy and wealthy for his whole life? Did he have, was, was he comfortable and, and just coasting on a life of ease? Not at all. We could read 2 Corinthians 11, where he describes some of the things he went through. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 27, this doesn't sound like a life of health and wealth. And if anybody should have had that, why it should have been the leaders of the church, Paul and the apostles. Five times, verse 24, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false uh, false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And in, in Philippians 4, in that, you know, the thirteen verse that talks about, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context there is he's talking about being content with whatever situation he's in. And he's talking about how he's learned to be content when he has much and when he has little. When he's hungry and when he's abounding in food. So again, he's, he's content and he's in these, been in these situations where he's hungry. And he doesn't have much and he doesn't have anywhere to sleep. And what about the other apostles? Do they live lives of health and wealth? Well, almost all of them were martyred, right? Almost all of them were martyred. That's definitely not healthy. Um, they, they were persecuted. We could read in Hebrews 11 about the persecution that took place. Hebrews 11, 37 and 38. Right. Hebrews 11 talks about all these who've gone before us faithfully. And some of the suffering they went through is, is mentioned on verses 37 and 38. Hebrews 11, 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And it's not because they lacked faith. They're in the chapter that's saying that here were the faithful that went before you. So they're not suffering because they didn't have enough faith. They had faith, right? That's why they're in this chapter. But they still went through all these awful things. This does not sound like physical prosperity. Okay, and we could say the same thing today or through all church history. If it's God's will for us to be healthy and wealthy, then shouldn't all the great men and women of God rarely be sick? In fact, unless they sin, shouldn't they live forever? Shouldn't you just be able to claim healing anytime you're getting sick? So how are you going to die? So shouldn't these pastors, teachers, whoever's that are claiming this, shouldn't they be able to just continually claim health and live indefinitely? And yet they die just like we do, right? Okay, we see name it and claim it pastors. uh, Bill Johnson, the guy at Bethel, he wears glasses like me. You shouldn't be wearing glasses. Claim the health of your eyes. Right? That's, that's a contradiction right there. Why does he have to wear glasses? Or you see the guys and they have a Band-Aid. They're preaching, they have a Band-Aid on their finger. Why do they have a Band-Aid on their finger? Claim the health, right? But it's, it's, a, it's not true. They know it's not true. And yet, some people buy this. What about COVID? Right? Well, you know, people, people they were afraid of COVID, just like everybody else. Right? So... It, it's, not, it's not anything different. They, they're dying just like everybody else. They aren't healing. They can't. But sadly, this prosperity message does appeal to the flesh, and that's why it's popular. So if you're focused on the material world, if your interest is in the, in the here and the now, if you're worldly, then that sounds really great. Because in a worldly sense, that's, that's what everybody would want, right? I want to be healthy and I want to be rich. Great. And if somebody promises that, sign me up. And so you get a lot of people that aren't really into you know, a church because they want Christ it's because they want the health and they want the wealth that's been promised and then they don't get it and sadly that can really um, turn people off to the whole movement as well and all of Christianity and they're like well all these promises were made and I'm supposed to be healthy and I'm not and so I guess Christianity is just garbage and they throw it out and they leave and so it mars, mars the name of Christ because it, it, it can't live up to these promises and then it blames it on the person who doesn't receive it and this is happening throughout America, but Africa as well. It's, uh, it's spreading all over the prosperity gospel churches. And the sad truth is, is one of the things it really does is it preys on the poor. Because the people that are really focused on winning, wishing they had more money and more health are the poor. And so the worst thing, not only do they just pray on anybody, but they pray on the poor. Because the poor are the ones who really uh, find that message appealing. So you see how, how it's spread all over in Africa. Conrad Mabuwe. I don't know how to say his name very well. Uh, but he, he, write, he has a thing I think I put in your paper, writing about it spreading in Africa and how, yeah, the whole the whole thing takes away from the gospel because nobody's looking to be spiritually saved. They're they're looking for health and wealth and then they don't receive it. He says they've woken up when it's too late and the teaching is wreaking havoc in the lives of many Christians. So rat Sorry. Go ahead. That's right. So the Bible actually shows us that often riches are an obstacle to becoming saved. Right. That's an example of it. The young, rich young ruler.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's right. So I mean, so what we can see from Scripture is we're warned against loving money. Right. We're warned against. And we're told that we should be content. So I have some passages there for interest in time. I'm going to skip over them and leave them for you. First Timothy and Proverbs. But we're warned against loving money. And then, as was just mentioned, the rich young ruler, after he would not, he loved his possessions too much that he wouldn't follow Jesus. Then Jesus says, this is Luke 18, 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So it's not that they can't. But he's warning that that's, that's hard a lot of times. And, you know, if you have wealthy, I have I have wealthy family that I know, and it's an obstacle because when you, have, when you have good money, then you're depending on yourself and you think everything's good and you can just buy what you need and, you, and you're self-sufficient, you think, and you don't see your need for the Lord as easily. Um, so that's a reality, that, that being rich can be an obstacle. Uh, and we're told in Scripture that we must not pursue health and wealth, but rather God. And trust in him to provide. Um, Again, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, all that you need will be added to you. Not all you want. All that you need will be added to you. So he'll take care of you if you uh, focus on him. Okay. And then uh, the reality is we're rich beyond belief. Right? That's the reality. We're, We're rich spiritually beyond belief. And so that's what we should be thankful for and focused on, not worrying so much about the material. And uh, I gave you a bunch of verses there you could look at about our spiritual uh, wealth in Christ. Those ones from Matthew 6 all the way down to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. All right. So that's the first one. So that's why we don't believe God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Not necessarily. There are some people who are going to be healthy and for a certain time right, of their life. There's some who are going to be wealthy, and, but we don't know. We can't make that promise that he wants every one of us to be that. And that really shouldn't be our focus um, on, on wanting that to happen, because then we get caught up in the world. Our focus should be on living for Christ and glorifying him. So there's no guarantee that we should be healthy and wealthy. There's no claim that, a promise that we can claim for that to become a reality. All right, second one, related to that, seed faith. So related to the prosperity gospel is this idea attributed originally to Oral Roberts of seed faith. Basically, the idea is that when you give to his ministry or one of these ministries, you're giving a seed, you're giving a kernel, which God will multiply many times in material blessing back to you, as long as you give in faith. Uh, Again, this appeals especially to poor people because it means you don't even have to have a lot. Whatever you can give, give it in faith and he's going to give you much more than you give him. Um, You don't have any money. That's okay. We have these wonderful things called credit cards. Charge it on your credit card in faith. They call it stepping out in faith. Step out in faith. Charge it on your credit card. He'll, He'll bless you with 10 times whatever you have, whatever you gave. Oh, it didn't work out. You didn't have enough faith. That's, that's really how that goes. This is common on Christ, so-called Christian TV. This is how these people get rich with promises of miracles. Give this, put, plant this seed and God will bless you materially with so much more. Uh, Oral Roberts' son, Richard, has this written on his website. Give God something to work with. Oh, God needs something from you to work with. No matter how little you think you have, Poor people, listen up. Sow it in joy and faith, knowing in your heart that you're sowing seed so you may reap miracles. Then start expecting all kinds of miracles. Okay, some passages are used to justify this teaching. One would be Luke 6.38. Let's turn there. So does the Bible teach this? That's what we're looking at. Does the Bible teach this? Is this true? Luke 6.38. So some would argue this passage teaches that. Luke 6.38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Okay, this is one one of the verses. Um, What's this verse about? Forgiveness, yes. This verse is about forgiveness. That's what we're talking about. It has nothing to do with wealth and health. Yeah. No,
1: that's-
0: Yeah, yeah, and then the, the you know the the trademark thing is taking passages out of context. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes ignorance is is why. But taking them out of context, I mean, that's not about wealth and health. That's about forgiveness. Luke six thirty eight. All right, and then we looked at Matthew seventeen twenty about uh, moving mountains. So we've already addressed that one. Um, how about Second Corinthians nine six to eleven? So this is a passage that actually talks about and uses some of, those, some of the words um, that, that they're using. This has the word sowing and reaping. And so let's read 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 11. So here's, here's what it says, starting in verse 6. <clears throat> My header in the ESV says the cheerful giver. So this is that section talking about giving. Uh, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is one of the go-to passages to prove seed faith. Okay, I want to make a couple notes here of why that's not what this is teaching us. Um, Notice... Paul uh, Paul says that God will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He says that you will be enriched in every way. But notice this, verse 8 says God provides sufficiently. This is probably talking about material possessions. He provides sufficiently so that we can give cheerfully. He doesn't promise a hundredfold blessing, but he's saying he'll provide so that we can give. Verse 8 says it is so that we can abound in every good work. What are those? Good works are works motivated by love for God and others, not a selfish desire for wealth. It's not for my dream car or private jet. Verse 10 says, by the way, God supplies the seed, not us. Verse 10 also says what kind of harvest we're talking about. What does it say? A harvest of what? Of your righteousness. Not a harvest of money. A harvest of righteousness. And then verse 11 says, the harvest produces thanksgiving to God. And this was, this was actually, Paul was, was putting together an offering for the Jerusalem church. That's what was going on in the context here, the historical context. And so it's going to produce thanksgiving as we put together this offering and we give it to the Jerusalem church who's needing it. Then God's going to get thank. They're going to overflow a thanksgiving to God. So the motive here is bless this other church, glorify God. And, you, and, and God will provide so that you can give, but it isn't saying that God's going to provide so that you can have all kinds of wealth and, and uh, do whatever you want with it. He'll provide so that you can give, and you can do this good work. And again, I ask if this—if this was really this concept was really true—shouldn't Paul and the apostles have been rich? Right? How about other faithful men and women throughout history? Shouldn't the richest people in the world be the holiest? <laughs> I'm pretend I didn't hear that <laughs> alright but Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 4.11 to the present hour we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless alright how about the widow with two mites Luke 21 this is often used to extract everything out of poor people because that's what they were doing So Luke 21, 1 to 4. The widow with the two mites. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Some people point to this widow as the example we should be following. But John MacArthur argues, and, and I would agree with him on this, that Jesus is not endorsing what's happening, but he's pointing to her as an example of someone who's been wronged by the religious leaders. And I think he's right because if you go right before this, verse 47 of the previous chapter, he's talking about those who are devouring widows. Devouring their houses. So in the context, he's talking about religious leaders and systems that are devouring widows. And then here's an example. She's giving up everything, what she needs to live, and they're taking it. Okay, So that's, that's what he's talking about. He writes, The Lord's eyes must have been downcast as he contemplated the damning false religion that had the nation in its grip. As Luke's account opens, Jesus looked up and saw the people, in particular the rich, putting their gifts into the treasury. This is clearly an example of what the Lord had spoken of. The legalistic works system had devoured this impoverished widow by taking from her all that she had to live on. And that's what the seed faith system does. It convinces poor people to give all they have, even when they don't have it, charge it, and then it points the finger at them when they don't get back tenfold or hundredfold blessing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Here is an illustration where a rich man opens his eyes in torment. He had everything in the word of God. The poor man had nothing. He had yeah. Christ. The rich man was really poor. The poor man was really rich. He had Christ. So I kind of wonder how would they respond to that text.
0: Yeah. You mean the word faithers or you mean the uh, Jewish the, religious leaders?
1: Uh, the, the word of faith is Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I guess they must make some allowance that there are some rich people who are not even believers. So they'd say, well, that guy, I'm guessing. I've not heard them teach on that passage. But they must make some allowance because there's lots of rich people out there who are obviously not believers. So they must say, well, okay, that's some kind of counterexample where that guy's been blessed, but he's not a believer. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. I've not heard them teach that. They probably don't teach that passage a lot. (laughs) And that's such a horrible unloving burden to put on somebody you know it's like you're sick it's because it's your fault <laughs> you know you're 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 born with a disease or you got cancer you say like, well what's your problem you should be fine and it's, it's all your fault and you and you just like Phew. i mean that's that's terrible yeah yeah Trying to determine if I have enough time for the next one. <laughs> well, we could start it. We'll start the next one. Okay, so we've covered um, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. We do not agree with that. Hopefully, um, we've established that scripturally. The seed faith idea, that's not biblical. Yeah? I just want to point
1: out we transition to a new topic that yeah. one of the reasons why so many people fall prey to all these bad um, theology
0: yeah
1: so.
0: and the churches aren't that they're at aren 't teaching
1: it, yeah,
0: all right, so that was seed faith, the next one I want to cover, so this is not this would be more like all of those churches we talked about, not necessarily we were basically we covered word faith with the first two. this would be more like well the whole idea if you believe that all the gifts are continuing, uh, my third argument here is. We would not agree with the statement that we can do miracles like Jesus and the apostles did. Okay, so in particular, the charismatic churches would say this. Uh, We can do miracles like we should be doing the same miracles that Jesus and the apostles did. Okay, so those gifts continue. That's the continuationist belief. What gifts? Again, we're talking about performing miracles, gifts of healing, speaking in tongues, uh, new revelation or prophecy. This is what we're talking about here. Um, Greg Allison notes about uh, Pentecostalism, that it's a spirit-emphasizing movement that is characterized by several unique doctrines and practices, including baptism in the spirit, which we'll talk about later, next time, uh, for Christians after conversion, speaking in tongues as evidence of that spirit baptism, and the exercise of all the spiritual gifts. So they would be saying that most of these continue, or all of these continue, um, we should be able to cast out demons, prophesy, heal, and all of those things. So why at Believer's Fellowship do we not agree with this? Why are we what we would call a cessationist church? Okay, I do want to note a couple things at the beginning. Uh, I want to acknowledge that the Bible does not explicitly state in a verse anywhere that the miraculous gifts have ceased on this day, such, such and such day. Okay? So there's no explicit statement in Scripture that we could just go to slam dunk, it's over. The Bible says right here they ceased. It's done. That makes it a little bit difficult because that gives room for people to argue the other way. So you have people that, you know, you have the cessationist view that we have. You have others that are continuationists and believe that the gifts are all still continuing. You have other people who would call themselves open but cautious. So those would be people uh, who would say they're open to the possibility of the gifts continuing, but they're cautious and they would probably acknowledge that most of what you see out there ain't it. Right? Almost everybody would admit that. <laughs> what you see out there isn't it. So the question is, where is it if you think it's still there? Right? If you think it's still continuing. But I do want to acknowledge that there isn't a slam dunk proof that I could just point you to this verse and say, there it is, done. Okay? But I'm going to make a case of why we believe that. Um, I also want to mention on the opposite side of it, the cessationist view does not put God in a box or deny miracles. That's one of the accusations. Oh, you don't think healing exists? Well... No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying we don't think God gives people the gift of healing like he did with certain people in scripture anymore. That doesn't mean God doesn't heal, miraculously. That doesn't mean God doesn't answer prayer, right? So we're just saying the gift of healing isn't in operation like it was back then. It's not the same thing, but the accusation would be, we'd call it a straw man accusation, is, oh, you're putting God in the box, you're denying that miracles happen. We're not.
1: Yeah. I guess we have to- what a miracle is. Yeah. It's something that, um, that is contrary to natural ways. You know, for example, when Jesus healed, there were people who were permanent position or born in the condition that he to Yeah. Um, the issues with uh, the Old Testament was just supernatural. Um, so we, we, like, my children, when they were born, when I had my heart, I would say it's a miracle, but they're not a miracle. This is a natural form of nature that God has has uh, destined, okay? I think the real miraculous miracles we experience is
0: salvation. Yeah, yeah that's the self. right.
1: It's a miracle, yeah. a real
0: miracle. So do miracles happen today? Incredible. Absolutely, right? They do. We're not denying that miracles happen. We're denying that people are given the gift where they have we're receiving new revelation, they're doing healings like in the Bible, they're casting out demons, all of those things. That's what we're talking about, okay? Um, So I just want to be honest up front about that. Those are both sort of extreme uh, either way. We don't have a slam dunk proof text, but we're also not putting God in a box and saying that miracles don't happen. Okay, so we're not going to have time to go through the whole thing, so we'll have to start today. So I'm going to give you several reasons why. Why do we believe the miraculous sign gifts have ceased and that they're no longer in operation in today's world? So here's the first argument, probably the only one we'll have time for today. Number one, the miraculous gifts have never been normative. Okay, what that means is normative is like the norm. What's normal? So what the charismatic argument would be is these things, these miraculous gifts, have always been happening for all time. They've always been happening. God's always been operating like that on Earth. And why do you think it stopped now? It's always been going on, and it's still going on. And so my claim is that's not true. They have not been always going on. All right. So that's that's the claim. It's not normative. Okay, well, let's, let me give you an example. After the Old Testament was completed with the book of Malachi, which was around 420 B.C., there was no new revelation, no scripture, no prophets until the New Testament some 400 years later. So we have what's called often the 400 silent years. Silent because God's not sending prophets and, and revelation anymore. Uh, Pastor Tom Pennington summarizes as follows. He says, God at a time in Israel's history displayed himself in a visible display of his presence in the tabernacle and later in the temple. God was there manifesting himself in a physical form so that people could see. They enjoyed his presence. God spoke through his prophets. They knew they were his prophets. They affirmed them as prophets even when they didn't like their messages. They knew these men spoke for God. God was speaking to the nation through these people. God was working miracles, amazing events in the life of the nation. But for 400 years after Malachi, until John the Baptist, there were no miracles. There were no angelic appearances. There were no prophets. There was no additional revelation. For 400 years. For 400 years, the page of Revelation is blank. The stage of the divine drama of redemption is dark and quiet. And he says, well, what was going on during those years? God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son. The Messiah had been promised in the Old Testament and a stage was being set for his first coming. And you could read uh, in Daniel, around 500 BC, Daniel prophesied about four world empires. There were multiple visions and dreams pointing to these four world empires. Starting with Babylon, and they were the, the power when Daniel was there. Uh, but then they had exiled Judah and the, out of the promised land in 586. So Babylon was the world power. But then when Daniel was about 80, a new empire took over, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after that, Greece took over. And then after that, Rome would take over. So these were the empires that Daniel had prophesied about. And that's part of what was going on during that time. These prophecies that had been given were coming about, right, to lead to Jesus' coming So those those prophecies came true, and by the time Jesus came, Rome was the was the nation that was in power. Okay, and then God sends John the Baptist, and he starts giving new revelation to be recorded in what we call the New Testament. So we can note that God was working out what He had promised. That's what He was doing during during these silent years, working it out and preparing the way for Christ to come the first time. And uh, you know, we note if we look at what He did, some of the things that were really cool and interesting and helpful. Uh, When Greece came to power, um, the language of Greek became common. And Greek's a very precise language, and it's it's really good and helpful for us that the New Testament ends up being written in Greek. Well, that wouldn't have happened any other time, right? So the time of Greek rising to power helped with the language. Uh, With Rome, Rome had these famous roads that made it easier for people to travel all over their empire, and that made it possible for the gospel to go forth. It made it possible to communicate. It made it possible to go to these places for the gospel. And if Rome hadn't been in power and done those things, that wouldn't have happened. So God's been putting these things in place for Christ's coming. And then, of course, uh, Israel's suffering, suffering under Rome, right, kind of is leading to this anticipation of a Messiah, although, of course, they end up rejecting Jesus. Uh, but all of those things are coming into place uh, during those, that silent period of 400 years so what we would argue is that what he he did upon the completion of the Old Testament he set the stage for Christ's first coming and then there was silence for 400 years preparing for Christ's coming that the same thing is happening now he's finished the New Testament he's given us the prophecies of what's going to happen and now we have a silent period in that sense until Christ's second coming the same thing is happening Um, And you'll see if you look through the Bible, remember our topic is to show that this isn't normative. All these gifts are not normal. Uh, If you read through, you'll see that the miraculous gifts are not the norm through history, but they occur heavily in certain times with certain people's ministries. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a theologian who's actually, he's a charismatic theologian, but he's pretty solid in most areas. So we'd agree with Wayne Grudem on most things. And he, as a charismatic theologian, writes this, In the Old Testament, miracles seem to occur primarily in connection with one prominent leader at a time, such as Moses, Elijah, or Elisha. In the New Testament, there's a sudden and unprecedented increase in miracles when Jesus begins his ministry. So he's saying this isn't happening all the time. This is suddenly ramping up during certain ministries for certain reasons. Uh, Robert L. Sassi, who calls himself open but cautious, so he's open to the gifts continuing, but cautious, he writes this, Miraculous activity was particularly concentrated at certain times. There were three prominent periods of miracles, that of Moses and the Exodus, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and Christ and the Apostles. Miracles were not a daily or even a weekly occurrence, and sometimes some times of history far eclipsed others In the magnitude of miraculous activity, the very fact that miraculous phenomena were not constant throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament should caution us against assuming that the level of miracles in the early church of the apostles is constant for all of subsequent church history. And John MacArthur writes, the Bible records only three periods of history in which human beings were given the gift of performing miracles. The first period was during the ministries of Moses and Joshua, the second during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and the third during the ministries of Jesus and the apostles. Each period lasted only about 70 years and then abruptly ended. The last miracle recorded in the New Testament in which God worked directly through a human instrument occurred in about the year 58, recorded in Acts 28.8. From that time until about 96, when John completed the writing of Revelation, not a single miracle of that sort is mentioned. Okay. All right, we have to stop there, so thank you for your patience. We're probably a little bit over time. Um, I'll pray, and then if you have any questions, and then next week we'll pick up on number two. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning again. uh, Lord, uh, our hearts are just overflowing with thanksgiving, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, live for you, that we would not be caught up in the deception of the world, that we would not be um, living self-seeking lives, self-glorifying lives, that we would not be even seeking the the things of this world like material health and wealth, but that our hope would be in you and the inheritance that we have. And so, Lord, uh, help us to just glorify you in in our lives and to have our eyes focused on you throughout. So just uh, use us this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.